0: Welcome to the Farm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Dr. Pharmacy. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Chris Toney, Dr. Pharmacy. There are 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one. We hope we can provide you with some education, entertainment value tonight around the field of psychedelic science, particularly we're going to be discussing psilocybin today, picking up where we left off last time, a kind of our introduction to what psilocybin is, what the mushrooms are. Today, we're going to be talking more about the drug and some of the clinical research that's been conducted on it. Before we get started, uh, we are recording live. Yesterday, we recorded this podcast, and this is actually take two because we record the whole thing and realized we only got about 40 seconds of material because myself forgot to hit the record button when we paused earlier. <laughs> so we didn't get much out of it. Um, so we're doing take two. It should be great today. And maybe we should have been on mushrooms while we were talking about mushrooms, Chris. (laughs) Maybe that would have prevented errors.
1: Yeah, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So following
0: up on uh, current events and news, last week the FDA released draft guidance on clinical investigations of psychedelic drugs. This is the first ever guidance they provided to industry on how to conduct clinical trials on psychedelics. Uh, One interesting thing... I got away from this document, it's kind of a long document, it's very technical and not the most interesting to read, you know, unless you're reading policy. But the FDA said any patient that had a history of pulmonary hypertension or pre-existing valveopathy um, should not be included in clinical trials for any drug that has activity at the serotonin 2B receptor. I just want to understand why that is, and we have to go back and revisit a drug called Fenfen that was popular in the 1990s as a dietary supplement. So the F-E-N or first FEN component was Fenfluramine, which is a serotonin releasing agent marketed in the 1970s for weight loss. It produced about a 7.5 kilogram weight loss on average over 24 weeks. But once it was combined with Fentermine or the other FEN components, the weight loss effects are far more significant with patients losing up to 17 kilograms on average. Weight loss clinics started to pop up everywhere around the United States, and the drug really became popular. But a 30 year old woman one day dropped dead due to heart disease within a month of starting FenFen, and that caused a real nationwide panic. The FDA started gathering data and found hundreds of more patients with dysfunction of the mitral or aortic valve that started shortly after they began FenFen or the drug dexfamfluoramine by itself, which is marketed individually. In 1997, the FDA requested withdrawal of dexfenfluramine from the market, followed by the end of fenfen itself. Although fenfluramine is back on the market as Fentepla, which is a drug marketed for a condition called Gervais syndrome. So it's kind of getting a second life like thalidomide did when it was pulled off the market for causing uh, birth defects. And now it's in a treatment regimen for cancer for certain types of myeloma. But further research into femfluramine and norfenfluramine showed it was a serotonin 2B receptor stimulant or agonist. Uh, it was also shown that methylgonavine or methergen was already a drug known to cause valvulopathy, that it also was a serotonin 2B receptor agonist, indicating the activation of serotonin 2B receptors is critical to developing valve disorder. Serotonin 2B receptors are concentrated in cardiac tissues and stimulation of those receptors can cause increased mitosis that leads to cell growth and valvular thickening. And when the heart valves thicken, that's not good for pumping. They become inelastic and they're not able to pump as efficiently. So pergolide and cabergoline also are serotonin 2B agonists and cause valve disorders. MDMA has a few case reports of associated mitral valve disorders, although this was not an inclusion criteria in the MAP trial. Exclusion criteria did consist of those with uncontrolled hypertension, history of arrhythmias, or baseline QT prolongation. Um, LSD is also known to cause valve thickening. So it's not just that there's concern about you know future testing on psychedelics might have this side effect, but it's possibly that some of these current agents do as well. It'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of phase four safety evaluation on MDMA's effects on the heart once the drug becomes FDA approved, which seems likely within the next year. Um, and the FDA has advised any agent with activation of serotonin 2B receptors to come up with patient safeguards until more is known about the potential side effect of valveopathy. One more interesting thing about the draft guidance, any fungi like psilocybin will be classified as botanical products since they are natural in their na- nature. Any product that is genetically modified or altered is not going to be considered a botanical. So it's a great segue now to start talking about psilocybin, which is, of course, a natural product, which is a selling point for some people, as a lot of people want to use natural products right now. Another advantage we've talked about previously is that the half-life of psilocybin is much shorter than LSD, which makes it easier to administer in a clinical trial or therapy session where patients require monitoring. So patients have to be monitored for about eight hours with psilocybin, which is a long time, but if it was LSD, it could be 10, 12, 14 hours, which is just really impractical. So MDMA and psilocybin are both in that spot of six to eight hours, so they're a lot easier to dose in clinic, even though that's still challenging in itself. Um, Psilocybin is believed to have similar effects to LSD, but is considered to be more strongly visual less emotionally intense more euphoric and with fewer panic reactions and less chance of paranoia than LSD. it was shown psilocybin produces an intense increase in cerebral metabolic rate of glucose mostly in the frontal cortex we also discussed the changes in the default mode network last week to kind of explain how psilocybin and other psychedelics that target the uh, serotonin 2a receptor work so i'm turning over chris for more on psilocybin research.
1: Yeah, so I would like to preface this by saying that I am not affiliated in any way with Johns Hopkins University, and I do not have any financial incentive tied to the studies that I will be discussing. Um, I'm choosing to highlight the effort uh, from John Hopkins Psychiatric and Behavioral Sciences Department from the year 2000 until now, uh, because they have shown to have consistently looked at different aspects of psilocybin and its relationship to improving many aspects of mental health. So the the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research uh, is currently leading the way in exploring innovative treatments using psilocybin. The molecular structure of psilocybin, which uh, is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound found in magic mushrooms, uh, it allows it to penetrate the central nervous system and the scientific and medical experts are just beginning to understand uh, its effects on the brain and mind and its potential as a therapeutic for mental illnesses. Um, Because there's not a a federal uh, grant backing um, psychedelic research, Um, a lot of uh, funds have been donated to this um, Uh, center at Johns Hopkins University, and they've, they claim that they have about $17 million uh, of funding that uh, allows them to build on previous work and expand research on psychedelics for illness and wellness. Uh, Number one, to develop new treatments for a wider variety of psychiatric and behavioral disorders with the aspiration of treatments tailored to the specific needs of individual patients. And then number two, to expand research in healthy volunteers uh, with the ultimate aspiration of opening new ways to support human thriving. In 2000, a group of John Hopkins researchers uh, was the first to obtain regulatory approval in the United States to resume research with psychedelics and healthy volunteers who had no previous experience with psychedelics. There was also a milestone study in 2006 um, that kind of relaunched psilocybin research. Um, It was titled, Psilocybin can occasion mystical type experiences having a substantial and sustained personal meaning and spiritual significance. And they looked at uh, the safety and enduring positive effect of a single dose of psilocybin and found that it's widely considered the landmark study that sparked the renewal of psychedelic research worldwide. And in 2008, uh, they published guidelines for safety with psilocybin. The team emphasized safety as a cornerstone of psychedelics research. Recommended techniques in this publication, human hallucinogen research guidelines for safety, Uh, they have been adopted by others in the field. In 2014, Johns Hopkins researchers uh, did a study uh, looking at long-term smokers and their ability to quit smoking. Uh, using psilocybin. And they reported that a small number of longtime smokers who had failed uh, many attempts to drop the habit did so after carefully controlled and monitored use of psilocybin, which we know is the active hallucinogenic agent in so called magic mushrooms. And in the context of a cognitive behavioral therapy treatment program, Uh, Colby, would you like to tell us a little bit about this study?
0: You know, so this is a small study enrolling 15 patients, 10 men and five women who smoked on average 19 cigarettes a day for 31 years. All had repeatedly tried to quit smoking and failed to do so in the past. They received two doses of psilocybin in the study in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy. One dose of psilocybin was given two weeks after beginning therapy and the other was eight weeks after the therapy started. The results showed at the end an 80% abstinence rate from smoking uh, six months after the trial was completed, which is far better than the best available drug alternative, which is Chantix of Irenicline, which offers only about a 35% success rate. The 12-month follow-up showed that 60% were still smoking abstinent. Also, you had 86% of people who rated their psilocybin experiences among the most profound events they had ever experienced in their lives. So something else going on besides just helping with
1: smoking cessation. So in 2018 uh, Johns Hopkins University, they basically wanted, want to give recommendations about uh, reclassifying psilocybin. In an evaluation of the safety and abuse research uh, on the drug and hallucinogenic mushrooms, Johns Hopkins uh, suggests that if Uh, psilocybin clears phase three clinical trials that psilocybin should be, uh, recategorized from a schedule one drug, which is one with no known medical potential, uh, to a schedule four drug, which is common for like prescription sleep aids and benzodiazepines, for example. One thing on that I will say is that typically, the strictest regulated drugs that can be, you know, consumed. Uh, by the public or schedule two medications uh, because they have to show some sort of medical value. And then from schedule two being the strictest schedule for drugs that can be obtained at a pharmacy, for example, you know, as you get to a lower schedule like schedule three or schedule four, gain the ability to get refills. And so it seems like Johns Hopkins University you know believes that it's lower, Um, on the scale for abuse potential and obviously believes it has uh, medical value. Colby, do you agree with Johns Hopkins University on rescheduling uh, psilocybin from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 4?
0: I'm not sure the answer, to be honest, to putting in Schedule Four. I will agree that it should not be Schedule One. As we talked about, and some people might already know, Schedule One means a drug has no therapeutic or medicinal benefit, according to the DEA. And we know that psilocybin does. There's plenty of research now to show it does. So, you know, Schedule One is not the right place for it. Beyond that, based on abuse potential, Schedule Four seems reasonable, but, you know, that's basically my answer on that. Not Schedule One, I'll say that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So in 2019, uh, Johns Hopkins University did an online study. Um, It was a survey of over 300 people with alcohol use disorder and they were, there was about 300 people that reported reducing or abstaining from alcohol after taking a psychedelic drug such as psilocybin, LSD, or DMT. And it adds to growing evidence for supporting further investigation of psychedelic assisted treatment for alcoholism or substance abuse. Uh, Would you like to tell us a little bit about that study, Colby?
0: Yeah, so this is a 32-week double-blind placebo controlled study conducted at both the University of New Mexico and at New York University. Enrolled 93 patients aged 25 to 65 with diagnosis of alcohol dependence with at least four heavy drinking days in the 30 days prior to screening, which was defined as more than five drinks per day for men and more than four drinks per day for women. Patients were excluded if they had major psychiatric and drug use disorders, if they had used any hallucinogen in the past year or more than 25 lifetime uses, if they had medical conditions that contraindicated either study medication um, or if they were on other exclusionary meds or on current treatment for alcohol use disorder. Well, patients were assigned one to one to psilocybin or placebo, in this case, Benadryl or Diphenhydramine, and these drugs were given at week four and week eight in an eight hour session. The doses used were 25 milligram per 70 kilograms of body weight for psilocybin for the first treatment date, or 50 milligrams of Benadryl or Diphenhydramine. Then patients got 30 milligram per 70 kilogram psilocybin at the second treatment session if their score on the Pan-K Richards mystical experience scale uh, was greater than 0.6, which indicated they had a robust response to psilocybin the first time, or they got a higher dose of 40 milligram per 70 kilogram body weight if their score in the first session was less than 0.6. The dose of Benadryl was 100 milligram in the second phase. Patients also received 12 psychotherapy sessions during the trial. There were four prior to the first treatment session, four between the two sessions and four after the second session. There were 49 patients randomized for randomized psilocybin and 46 to placebo. Most of them were white and they on average consumed alcohol 74% of days with heavy drinking of seven or more drinks on 52% of days. So safety data showed primary side effects in the psilocybin group were headaches and anxiety. Uh, two patients required Valium or diazepam for acute anxiety during the second treatment session. Patients were also monitored during their psilocybin therapy by two therapists. Then, Blood pressure and heart rate was modestly elevated in the psilocybin group. Serious safety outcomes occurred only in the Benadryl group, as two patients acquired psychiatric hospitalization due to binge drinking during the trial, and one had a tear in their esophagus due to vomiting during a binge drinking episode. Heavy drinking days were 25% during the trial for the Benadryl group versus less than 10% for the psilocybin group. Um, Patients actually had their hair and nail samples tested for ethanol glucuronide metabolites to try to confirm that they were being honest about not drinking alcohol during the study. And limitations of the study was that there was no follow-up beyond 32 weeks. So we know patients with alcohol use disorder can relapse. And it was also hard to maintain blinding A lot of people knew whether they're getting psilocybin or a placebo. They figured it out, uh, which happens a lot of psychedelic trials. Uh, I also said it'd be interesting to see if an active comparator could be used uh, compared to psilocybin like Vivitrol, which is a current therapy used for alcohol use disorder. The Quantum Trip trial is another trial which is enrolling patients now in Copenhagen and is set to be completed in 2024. It's a 12-week double-blind placebo-controlled trial randomizing patients' With alcohol use disorder to receive either 25 milligrams psilocybin or placebo uh, in that trial patients will have to have more than five drinking days in the 28 days prior to the trial starting to be included in the trial but we'll have to watch for the results of that because it is
1: not finished yet so in in 2019 johns hopkins uh, launched the center for psychedelic research. So as I said earlier, you know, a group of private donors gave about $17 million to start the center for psychedelic and consciousness research at Johns Hopkins medical department, making it the first, it's the first such research center in the United States. And it's the largest research center of its kind in the world. Um, in the absence of federal funding for such therapeutic research in people uh, the new center will rely on the financial gifts uh, they received to advance the emerging field of psychedelics for therapies and wellness. And then a year later in 2020, Johns Hopkins looked at psilocybin's ability to lower or you know, tampen down the, the brain's ego center. So they what they found was that the claustrum was less active um, in brain scans of people with psilocybin, which meant that the area of the brain believed responsible for setting attention and switching tasks is turned down when on the drug. And the researchers say that this ties in with what people report as typical effects of psychedelic drugs, including feelings of being connected to everything and reduced sense of self or ego. In 2021, Johns Hopkins was awarded a grant from the National Institutes of Health uh, to explore the potential impacts of psilocybin on tobacco addiction. And this was the first NIH grant awarded in over 50 years to directly investigate the therapeutic effects of a classic psychedelic. So Johns Hopkins Medicine will lead the multi-site three-year study in collaboration with the University of Alabama at Birmingham and New York University. In 2021, they did a study where they uh, looked at adults that had major depression, and they gave them two doses of psilocybin, along with supportive psychotherapy. And they found that um, it produced rapid and large reductions in depressive symptoms, uh, with most participants showing an improvement and half of study participants achieving remission through the four week follow up. And then in 2022, previous studies by Johns Hopkins, medicine researchers showed that psychedelic treatment with psilocybin relieved major depressive disorder symptoms in patients for up to a month. And now in a follow up study of those participants, the researchers reported that the substantial antidepressant effects of psilocybin-assisted therapy uh, when given with supportive psychotherapy uh, may last at least a year for some patients. Phase two trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine for patients with major depressive disorder. Psilocybin at a single dose of 25 milligrams reduced depression scores significantly more than a one milligram dose over a period of three weeks, but was associated with with adverse effects. So they were mild adverse effects. Uh, They included things like headache, nausea, and dizziness. And this was in about 77% of patients. Uh, Larger and longer trials, including comparison with existing treatments are necessary to determine the efficacy and safety of psilocybin for this disorder.
0: Yeah, as we say, that's every scientific research trial says more trials are required. but yes. <laughs> You know, it's not necessarily untrue. You always need more research, but it seems to be the common of every trial to end with that. I want to talk about this other trial. This is kind of an unusual one that's published recently in New England Journal of Medicine on psilocybin versus Lexapro. So it's a phase two randomized controlled trial uh, enrolling patients with long-standing moderate to severe depression from Dr. Carhart Harris's lab in the UK, We talked about that, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris last week and the research he's done on brain imaging for patients on psychedelics. But in this trial, patients are randomized to psilocybin 25 milligram, two doses given three weeks apart, plus six weeks of placebo, or psilocybin one milligram, two doses three weeks apart, plus six weeks of Lexapro or s uh, which is an SSRI. 59 patients enrolled in this trial, um, 18 to 80 years old. They were enrolled through social media recruitment, so it was open enrollment. They're excluded if they had an immediate family or personal history of psychosis. They had medically significant health conditions that made them unsuitable to participate in the trial as assessed by a physician. If they had a history of serious suicide attempts, a positive pregnancy test, or any contraindication to taking a SSRI or previous use of Lexapro, although previous use of psilocybin was allowed, or if they had a borderline personality disorder. Patients were evaluated on the quick inventory depression symptomology or QIDS scale. It was a 12, sorry, 16-item scale with higher scores indicating more severe depression. The max score in the scale is 27, and the average score among patients in this trial was 14.5 in the psilocybin group and 16.5 in the Lexapro group. Patients in the Lexapro group also used more alcohol and the mean duration of depression uh, in patients this trial was 22 years. Most were men, only 34% women, and again, most were white. Results showed that the mean change in score was eight points for high dose psilocybin and six points for low dose psilocybin plus Lexapro. So the between group difference was two points and the result was not considered statistically significant. Um, A response was defined as a reduction of the QIDS score of 50% or more in patients. This is experienced in 70% of patients in the psilocybin group and 48% of those in the low-dose psilocybin plus Lexapro group. This had a between group difference of 22 points and depression remission occurred in 57% of patients in psilocybin group versus 28% in the low-dose psilocybin and Lexapro group. So the purpose of having a one milligram psilocybin dose was to standardize expectations. So all patients were informed they would receive psilocybin, but not what dose they're going to get. They kind of treated one milligram psilocybin as a placebo in this study based on the belief it had no activity. Um, not really sure you know, if one milligram psilocybin really is something with no activity. I think Chris and I both feel that true microdose would be something in the microdose range. And there is evidence to show that one milligram psilocybin actually does have activity. So it's hard to tell whether there was a real control group in this study. And then using Lexapro 10 milligram for three weeks that increased to 20 milligrams it seems like it created an additional variable to the study. Also, some people discovered there on Lexapro versus um, psilocybin, four patients actually quit taking it because of adverse events. One person quit Placebo in the 25 milligram psilocybin group was disqualified, but headache was the most common side effect in the psilocybin group and anxiety was more common in the Lexapro group than with psilocybin, which was interesting. It was kind of a weird design study again, because Lexapro, first of all, usually takes four to six weeks to be effective. So maybe the full benefits weren't felt yet since the short trial. But to me, it was also notable that no patient reported anxiety as a side effect in the psilocybin 25 milligram group. To me, that shows a potential safety benefit, if nothing else, of psilocybin. And, you know, the microdosing, the one milligram regimen is kind of strange. Uh, I guess microdosing is usually more consistent than once every few weeks, but it still doesn't feel like a true placebo to me, one milligram. Uh,
1: in 2016, um, Johns Hopkins researchers did a study... Uh, it was a small double-blind study that reported that a substantial majority of people suffering uh, cancer-related anxiety or depression uh, found considerable relief for up to six months from a single large dose of psilocybin. What Colby was just saying about how you know anxiety seemed to be reduced um, in patients that got the higher dose of psilocybin, uh, this study kind of supports that idea, too, that you know it can be an effective uh, treatment for anxiety and in this case we're talking about you know psilocybin use uh, for anxiety uh, with people dealing with end-of-life uh, diagnoses like life-threatening cancer for example
0: yeah there's also kind of a entheogen response with psilocybin where it, there's a spiritual type experience some people have which uh we really I've talked mostly about science and not about spirituality or religion, but there is a lot of interest in, you know, these drugs for that reason too. So perhaps that helps with anxiety and giving people meaning to their life or end of life scenario. Um, believing there's a God, for example, that's I've heard some people never thought there was a God until they took mushrooms and trips. So <laughs> that's a little off topic, but it kind of relative end of life. There's a lot of studies on SAS 7 for end of life. The first one I could find was in 2004 that enrolled 12 patients, 11 women, uh, one man. These patients had advanced stage cancer and diagnosis of acute stress disorder or generalized anxiety disorder due to cancer or adjustment disorder with anxiety. Patients were 36 to 58 years old. The trial excluded patients with CNS cancers, severe cardiovascular illness, untreated hypertension, or a history of schizophrenia, or psychosis, or pre-existing anxiety disorders. Patients received two experimental treatment sessions: one with zero point two milligram per kilogram of psilocybin, and one with niacin, which was uses the placebo in this case. Niacin is often chosen as a placebo in studies of magic mushrooms because it induces a flushing and tingling sensation that kind of like mimics some sort of actual reaction, even though there's no high or real effects on the brain. Some people just feel like they're experiencing something. Different questionnaire scales are given to patients beginning at two weeks after each session and continuing every month for six months after the final session. Results showed that the STAI trait anxiety scale demonstrated significant reduction in anxiety that reached significance one month after treatment with psilocybin and mood improved for two weeks after treatment with psilocybin with significant improvement on the Beck depression inventory at six months after treatment began. The profile of mood states was elevated prior to psilocybin admin and remained elevated two weeks later in 11 out of 12 patients. Safety screening showed uh, minor increases in heart rate and blood pressure with psilocybin, but no patient experienced arrhythmia. Uh, Efficacy results were not quite as strong as in like the 1970s trials with psilocybin where they used megadoses. But these lower doses of psilocybin still showed benefit. Some patients were upset that they got the niacin seconds uh, that got the psilocybin first. They could obviously tell they're on a placebo the second time, and they wanted a second dose of psilocybin instead. Another study of 51 patients with life-threatening diagnosis, um, such as cancer, with symptoms of depression was conducted in 2014. Patients received a placebo with either one milligram or three milligram per 70 kilogram body weight dose of psilocybin or 22 milligram or 30 milligram per 70 kilogram body weight. 80% of patients in the high dose psilocybin group endorsed moderate to greater increased well-being of life satisfaction with mystical type experiences strongly associated with therapeutic outcomes. There were minor increases again in blood pressure, some up to 160 milligram systolic. 33% 33% of patients in the psilocybin group, but none required medical intervention. Neither did any increase in heart rate require medical intervention. So some effect in this trial was observed at the three milligram per 70 kilogram dose, which was why the dose the second time was lowered to one milligram per 70 kilogram. The authors said in the future, they maybe should consider using 0.01 milligram for a true placebo Again, that's why we call it micro dosing, because maybe you need dosing in that microgram range to actually have something that doesn't have any psychedelic effect at all. Three other trials also showed benefit of psilocybin in a similar population for end of life depression and those with terminal illness. There were three placebo controlled trials conducted within the last decade one at NYU, one at UCLA, and one at Johns Hopkins, as we talked about. Showing a single dose of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with psychotherapy in patients with advanced cancer-related psychiatric distress produced rapid, substantial, and sustained reductions in anxiety of depression and improved quality of life. It seemed like mystical-type experiences were crucial to reestablishing meaning in a person's life and reduced desire to end their life early. So that's kind of like the Entheogen response, talking about giving meaning of life to some people and religious type experiences. In addition, population level data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that lifetime psychedelic use is associated with 14% reduction in suicidal thinking, 29% reduction in suicidal planning, and 36% reduction in suicidal attempts. Uh, Another study out of Canada, an epidemiological study showed 60% reduced suicidality hazard among sex workers in Canada who had reporting using psilocybin. Ayahuasca also was shown to have a protective effect in this um, investigation as one open label study showed that within 30 minutes of ayahuasca use, patients had reduction in suicidality and major depression and those reductions were sustained over one to three weeks. Um, we'll talk more about ayahuasca at some point in the future, but maybe it's not just psilocybin that has benefit for preventing end-of-life depression and preventing suicide. So lastly, we have to mention two states that have been, moved the ball forward in granting access to psilocybin. Those are Oregon and Colorado. I hope we get some future guests on to discuss the challenges faced so far in these states, and the positive momentum they're building as well. But from a practical standpoint, a barrier to psilocybin therapy is the time required for administration and the regulatory barrier of sites requiring certification of facilitators. So it's going to be expensive for some patients and for facilities, but it does seem like an exciting step forward. So the differences in how the states have approached psilocybin legalization, in Oregon, psilocybin. Um, laws allow anyone over the age of 21 to have access to psilocybin in a clinic setting for any indication. No prescription or referral will be needed, only patients need the ability to pay, of course. They will need a pre-therapy session and follow-up integration session, and facilitators will be required to have a high school diploma, be an Oregon resident, and complete a 160-hour licensed training program and pass a test administered by the Oregon Health Authority. Some people are worried if they join as a facilitator, they might lose their DEA license for participating in the program. But Oregon is trying to ensure protection federally um, from punishment under right to try laws. Retail sales for now will remain illegal in Oregon. Colorado laws, um, the state will not be accepting applications for healing centers or dispensaries until 2024. People are allowed to grow and consume psilocybin, mushrooms, and derivatives, as well as ibogaine, mescaline, and DMT for personal reasons, although LSD will still remain illegal. People can give away these drugs, but they cannot sell them, and they cannot advertise when they are giving them away. You're only allowed a 12 by 12 area on your private property on which to grow, and the penalty for breaking the law, according to the state, is a $100 fine and up to 24 hours of public service. It seems like I've been on the light side, really, um, but there could still be federal punishment since this is not legal at the federal level yet. So, a lot of changes we're seeing. Psilocybin definitely has a lot of research and it's gaining popularity in practice. Stanislav Groff, who is a big psychologist and pioneering researcher in the field of psychedelics, has likened the value of psychedelics and psychiatry and psychology to what the microscope has done for biology and the telescope for astronomy, a major paradigm shift in how we treat these conditions and potentially, you know, a real shifting force in our society and in medicine. So I just want to close by saying that Next time, we will be having a guest interview with George Selhorn. He's with Flourish Labs in Oregon. They're one of the largest psilocybin mushroom testing facilities, helping to ensure that these clinics have access to safe product. And he's also getting a functional mushroom testing with uh, Lion's Mane and Reishi. That'll be exciting to be with him. We also will talk more about drug interactions with psilocybin and discuss psilocybin for pain, which we did not get into with folks on mental health tonight. Anything you want to close by saying, Chris? Uh,
1: no, I think we got through pretty much everything we planned on. So
0: Except for the mad honey.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's something we'll have to talk about later. That's a big topic.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about mad honey another time, and I'll have a link in the reference so you know what I'm talking about. I guess that's all we have again for tonight, and we hope you got something out of this. Thank you very much. Have a good night. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances.